It's the ERP Confab. I'm David Essex, Industry Editor at TechTarget's ERP website. Cloud ERP is often hyped as a must-have for digital transformation. But do you really need cloud ERP to digitally transform a business? And what about all the challenges of moving an on-premises ERP to the cloud? Can you still get most of the benefits without moving everything? Few people are better equipped to answer those questions than ERP consultant Eric Kimberling. He's helped organizations implement all the major ERP brands as CEO of Third Stage Consulting Group and has long been a rare contrarian among consultants about the need for cloud ERP, especially software as a service. I asked him if his skepticism about SaaS ERP has softened at all, given recent advancements, and how companies can decide what parts of the business to move. We also discussed the lessons he learned while writing his latest book, The Final Countdown, Strategies to Reach the Third Stage of Digital Transformation. Eric, over the years, you've been somewhat of a contrarian about SaaS, and you've been one of the few consultants that I know of to push back against the presumption, which is mostly pushed by vendors, I think, that digital transformation must mean SaaS. Have you changed your view in recent years now that SaaS ERP has become, in some cases, comparable to on-premises ERP, and especially since vendors like SAP are putting almost all of their development money into it? I, I have a bit. I'd, I'd say I've, I've tempered, maybe tempered some of the contrarian view of, of cloud in, in recent years. And I'll probably not have any sort of a contrarian view here in a few more years. But I think where I'm still a contrarian is just where we are right now at this moment in time here, you know, coming up in, in 2024 and in the new year. There's a vision of what SaaS and cloud will be. And I think we will get there where SaaS and cloud are just as mature and more mature than on-prem ever was and more advanced technologies. And you've got AI and BI and analytics, all this stuff that now is enabled by cloud. But for the time being, we're still transitioning. And when I say we, I mean, you know, the enterprise tech space is still largely transitioning. Some have already fully moved to cloud and SaaS uh, solutions like NetSuite and Salesforce, for example, Workday too. But others, you know, like SAP and for Oracle, some of the bigger guys are still, they're still rewriting that code. They're still rewriting and transitioning all those decades of legacy functionality for better or for worse, trying to figure out how to move that over. And at the same time, add new functionality, new capabilities with AI and analytics and internet of things and all the stuff that is enabled by cloud. So it's a, it's a huge lift and it's actually impressive how quickly the industry is doing it, but we're still not there yet. So I think that's the, the caveat I'd add to, to what you're saying. It has seemed to me over the past several years, just as an observer and member of the press, that there's been a growing recognition that companies can undertake a partial cloud migration by adding cloud infrastructure to their existing legacy software, maybe by moving to a public cloud provider uh, like AWS or opting for a private cloud and similar kinds of approaches. In some cases, it's a so-called lift and shift where the existing on-premises ERP gets moved off-site to a public cloud or managed service or the cloud service of the ERP vendor. Do you ever advise this kind of, quote-unquote, cloud ERP approach for your clients? We do in select cases where there's some sort of capability missing from the multi-tenant cloud offering that the vendor has to offer, or in cases where a client has heavily customized an on-prem solution and to make that jump to a cloud or SaaS solution, or let's just say a multi-tenant SaaS solution, that might be either too risky, they're not ready for it, it's going to take them years to get there. 
in those cases, those isolated cases, then yes, we might say, well, let's do more of a private cloud lift and shift where you're taking what you've got, even the custom code and all this outdated stuff that you're doing, move it to the cloud just to, if anything, get it off your, your balance sheet and clear up the you know, the capital costs, get rid of all the maintenance and all the headache that comes with maintaining your own infrastructure, which most organizations don't need to do that anymore. You know, if they, if they can move to a private cloud, why not, you know, have someone else manage it and that sort of thing. So in those cases, yes, we do, but it, you do it in the context of understanding that it's a, it is a band-aid solution. It's not going to last you for 10 more years. It might just buy you some additional time while you figure out how you're going to, you know, move to a multi-tenant or a SaaS a sort of a solution longer term. Can that be considered digital transformation in any sense, or does it fall short of a true transformation maybe because customers who do that haven't really changed their business processes maybe in the same way that they would have to if they went to multi-tenant SaaS? Yeah, I'd, I'd probably stop a little short of saying that's digital transformation if, if you do that. Um, of course, every organization has to define what digital transformation means or should mean to them. But for the most part, if you're just doing a lift and shift, you're not really changing a lot. Now you can, of course, you you can do some incremental improvements, incremental changes, incremental transformative sorts of improvements to your business while you're doing a lift and shift. So you can do you know multiple things in parallel, in which case it becomes more of a digital transformation. But it might be that it's just a first step leading you towards a true digital transformation. When I've observed vendors like SAP, you could say Oracle, so many of them really Unifor, others that have tried to get people to the multi-tenant SaaS, it's it's really clear that there is an issue of how many of the business processes can be run at all, or maybe certainly run in the same way if they go to the multi-tenant SaaS ERP system. Do you have a way of sort of helping clients think that through and decide which business processes they can move to multi-tenant SaaS? Yeah, we do. And in a lot of times you have to filter through and untangle some of the the way it's always been phenomena within organizations to, to where, you know, they may or may not have a, a good reason for the way they do things today. A lot of times there is a good reason. A lot of times it is something that's really unique to them and they've they've created some sort of secret sauce or some, you know, competitive advantage that other organizations don't have, in which case you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater in those cases. But a lot of times, a lot of the resistance to change is just because we've always done it that way. And that's just the way we, you know, someone 20 years ago decided it was going to be that way. And it sort of became reality. And it's hard for organizations to question, like, do we really need to do it that way? Or is the way that the software works out of the box, is that going to accomplish the same goal? It just might look totally different and it might be a learning curve issue, but at the end of the day, it's going to give us what we want. So I think you have to to answer your question, yes, we do help clients separate and distinguish between the two. And it's very hard because it's it's hard to just objectively understand as an organization when you're in the organization. It's hard to understand and separate the processes that really do need to change versus the ones that maybe there's a reason they are the way they are and they should stay that way, or at the very least, you know, maybe not get watered down by any limitations of the technology they're deploying. Mm-hmm. Are there certain criteria that your clients can apply when they're analyzing the business process to see if it can move over? Maybe it's like you say, some are really customized or there's secret sauce versus things that are really generic and maybe not differentiated for them. Is is that part of how you help them decide? Yeah, I can give you maybe two extreme examples for illustrative purposes. One would be, you know, if you look at something like a accounts payable and how I process invoices and pay vendors. 
there's probably not a competitive advantage to doing that any different than how any other company in your industry, even outside your industry does it. Now, of course, there's going to be little nuances that might be unique to you, but generally speaking, accounts payable processing, invoice processing might be an area where you say, okay, whatever the software does, we can live with that and it's not going to hurt our business. Now, if you flip to the other side now and say, well, what about, you know, we're an engineer to order manufacturer and we've got this unique product configuration ability where David Essex comes to us and he has specific needs. We can take those specific needs into, into account and we can create a custom solution, a custom manufactured solution. Salesperson can create it all in the system that trickles into the manufacturing and everything that goes downstream. That's a unique competitive differentiator for a lot of engineer to order manufacturers. If your software can't do that, then you might say, well, hold on. We're not just going to say we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to have to figure out how to plug that gap. Either we're going to change the software or we're going to find a plugin to help us address that need. So those are two extreme examples. And the problem is most examples are going to fall somewhere in a more gray area that's a little bit harder to navigate. But that's an example of how you would differentiate between the two and make different decisions and come to different conclusions depending on what the business process is. So how extensive can digital transformation be? I would imagine that some companies just digitize one or two, albeit important business processes or maybe lines of business, but leave the rest on their older systems, probably still running on software and not using manual processes, but still on their legacy software nevertheless. Can you give an example of a client or two that you feel has done the most to really digitally transform the entire business? Yeah. Well, first I'd say that most of our clients and most organizations we come across don't make these big leaps overnight. I mean, most organizations have a certain amount of risk aversion. Some have more risk tolerance than others, but for the most part, organizations are going to be measured and incremental in the way they go about it. So I think the key is to recognize your culture and your risk tolerance and, and create a tempo and a transformation plan that reflects that. Now, not to say you can't push yourselves and try to be more aggressive and that sort of thing, but it's not going to happen overnight. I think too many organizations come in thinking that you know they can just flip a switch overnight and they're going to completely transform their business. And the reality is that's not realistic in most cases. So I think the key is to really you know align the strategy and the tempo and the pace of the project with you as an organization and be okay with that. I mean, you can listen to people like you and I talk all day about how you need to transform now or you're going to die. You know, that's, it's easy for you or I to say that, but at the end of the day, it's your business and only you understand, you know, how fast you really need to change. And, you know, we're always there to push our clients to push faster and be more aggressive, but there's only so far you're going to push most organizations. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's probably the, you know, the, the first thing, you know, I will say that we've had a couple big clients that have gone through pretty massive transformations that are process improvements, organizational improvements, new technologies, new platforms. And the key to every, any example I can think of is that they were not overnight, they were incremental and they're very deliberate. So we have one big client, for example, that's in year six of a seven-year transformation. And it, I don't say seven years as a negative either. They're a huge organization with massive implications of the changes and it's appropriate. I think the seven-year transformation is appropriate for this large Fortune 500 company. So that's one example. But but even in that case where it was very transformative, it's a huge, huge leap that they're making. It still took them several years to do it. So I think that's the key is to recognize just the reality of, of these sorts of projects. Does a, a really complete digital transformation, does it essentially digitize almost every business process or are people still kind of manual on a lot of things? Is it is there a limit to how far they can go in putting things on software and on computers? Mm, that's a good question. I'm, I I don't know that there's really a limit um, as far as technological options. 
I think there's more of a limit of an organization's ability to change within a reasonable amount of time, in which case they have to prioritize and say, you know, of these hundred things we could be automating in our business, we're going to focus on these 10 or 20 first. And then two years from now, we might get to these other 20 and, you know, over time we'll eventually get to the hundred. But I think that's more the way to look at it is not so much as an either or do we or don't we automate or do we or don't we digitize, but instead just what is that overall strategy and roadmap to help us get there? What's the most common thing that you think people get wrong about digital transformation? I'd say it's two things really, and they're somewhat related. One is unrealistic expectations for what a project's going to take and how much of a lift it really is. I think there's a tendency in the in the industry for software vendors and, and the system integrators to sort of downplay or create an overly optimistic scenario of what could be. And that creates unrealistic expectations, which leads to a lot of difficulty later on. And then the second thing would be the change management. I think that's another thing that people get wrong is they assume that people are going to want to change. Therefore, change management is not that big of a deal. And then they get far along to the project and coming up on go live and realize, wow, this is a big deal. And people are panicking now and they're not understanding the new processes and the new technologies. And by the time you realize that, a lot of times it's too late. Now you've got delays in the project and you've got to uh, redo a lot of work. So I think those two things, the unrealistic expectations, and a lack of focus on the human side of change, those are probably the biggest things that people get wrong. So your latest book came out a few months ago, and it's called The Final Countdown, Strategies to Reach the Third Stage of Digital Transformation. And it's been said, and I don't remember the exact phrase, so I'm paraphrasing here, that writers write to learn what they think about things. In other words, they learn things from the act of writing. In that sense, what did you learn maybe about yourself, your clients, or the tech industry that seemed new and really important to you while you were writing the book? Well, I think, first of all, you know, early in the inception of the book, probably two years ago, I tried to write a book that was all-encompassing, or that was the original idea. It was just sort of like a flyover view of everything related to digital transformation. I quickly realized that's not, at least for me, it wasn't feasible, and it, it, I sort of had to scrap that idea and, and refocus the intent of the book. So I decided to focus on digital strategy and really the front end, you know, how do you define the roadmap, how you evaluate technologies, align your strategy with your overall corporate goals, that sort of thing. And then the idea being that later on I'll, in future books, I'll cover other dimensions of, of digital transformation. So that was the first thing I learned is that digital transformation is very complex. I know, it, you know, we all try to simplify it. We all try to create, you know, sort of the magic quadrant approach to decision-making, things like that, where it's it's two-dimensional, it's easy to get your head around, that sort of thing. And you do have to break down digital transformation into bite-sized chunks to, to make it more digestible. But at the end of the day, they're very complex and there's a lot to it. I think that was a big realization for me is how, how much goes into digital transformation, so much so that I couldn't write a single book on everything related to it. And then, you know, I guess the the other thing that came about from, from writing it is just how so much of what I wrote in the book hasn't changed. Like I could have written this book, a lot of this book, I feel like I could have written 20 years ago and it still would have been the same theme. Now, obviously technology's changed. The world has changed. So there are some contextual things that have changed and are reflected in the book that are more current, but just the fundamental concepts of what it takes to be successful in a technology initiative. The good news is I feel like that stuff hasn't changed that much. Technology has, but not the way you go about approaching these sorts of projects. Mm -hmm. At this stage, early 2024, what would you say is the place of cloud computing 
in digital transformation and maybe comparing it even to five or 10 years ago. How essential is it and how sort of optional is it and what is its key role in digital transformation? I think it's critical. And I I think someday we won't be talking about cloud computing, not because it doesn't exist, but just because that's just the way it'll be. You know, we don't wake up every day and talk about the blue sky necessarily. We we look at the sky and it's the sky. It's, it's the color it is. And I think that's kind of what will happen with cloud computing. I think everything will just be in the cloud for the most part. I mean, you might have exceptions where there's regulatory or uh, cybersecurity reasons to keep things in-house in some isolated cases, but for the most part, everything will be in the cloud. I think the key reason why that is so important and such a big deal is because you think about the the rapid pace of change of technology and organizations have have trouble changing. And if you wait on organizations to decide that they're going to change and upgrade to the newest version of a technology, we've seen over decades that that chasm grows. You get companies that are stuck on 30-year-old technology while technology has advanced exponentially. That phenomenon will largely go away with cloud and it will sort of force organizations, for better or for worse, to move faster, to adapt, to change faster, to innovate faster and to get the benefit of technology. So I think it's a it's a net gain. And I know, you know, back to your first question about me being a contrarian about the cloud, I I still am a contrarian about where we are right now. I think it's maybe more of a realistic view, I in my opinion, of where we are right this minute. But I agree largely with the industry of where we're headed. It's just a matter of how fast are we going to get there and at what point do we see that sort of tipping point where organizations start to get used to this whole idea of cloud. Well, Eric, it's been great to talk to you, um, and thanks for coming on the podcast today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Love being here, as always.